It seems there's confusion over the term propaganda. For some reason, many people think propaganda in itself is a negative thing or a misleading thing. Once again, propaganda, dare I say it, it, it would drive you crazy again. It's just a tool. It's who's wielding the propaganda. Propaganda in, in itself is not a negative thing. It's just a repetitive message that you're trying to convince. No, no. Which, propaganda which, is a terrible thing. Propaganda is a terrible you're, thing. You're, you're a propaganda for the free market. I mean, it's just the same thing. What? You have repetitive. But that couldn't be further from the truth. What propaganda is, is a process. It's who and for what is using this process, which dictates if the propaganda is honest or dishonest, if it is good or bad. So to help us understand the process of propaganda, we'll call on Edward Bernays and his work entitled Propaganda. Now, Edward Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he probably can be credited with being the forefather of modern propaganda. There's a documentary that can be found on YouTube by the BBC entitled The Century of the Self, which the first part of that series goes specifically into Edward Bernays and who he was and how he succeeded. And succeed did he ever. He became very rich and very well respected for applying his methods of propaganda. Now what he applied was nothing that he invented and nothing that had not been known and used uh, you know, for God knows how long. Who knows when the first propaganda method uh, came about. But it was definitely something in the modern age that Edward Bernays turned into uh, his science by using his uncle's belief in tantalizing the id of the human character, the primitive brain, the urges, that messages could be put across and accepted. Products could be sold. People could be enticed to political messages or commercial products, whatever it may be, by focusing the message towards man's irrational side, his emotional side, his base desires. So Bernays, he was born in 1891 and he died in 1995. So he was 103 when he died. So he lived a pretty damn long life. More than most of us could hope for, that's for sure. So let's get into a little bit of what he says here. First, he sets the scene for what it is and what's going on, whether people realize it or not. We are governed. Our minds are molded. Our tastes formed. Our ideas suggested. Largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. Our invisible governors are, in many cases, unaware of the identity of their fellow members in their inner cabinet. They govern us by their qualities of natural leadership, 
their ability to supply needed ideas, and by their key position in the social structure. So he's starting off saying, listen, whether you realize it or not, most of the decisions you make in your life are governed by a select elite. And, you know, most people don't want to comprehend that. They want to think there are these very rational actors and, uh, you know, they can think themselves out of everything and they're aware of everything and everything they make is simply or organic from them. They have, there's no influence from anything else. And this is, you know, this is absurd. Just look in the society we live in in America. Why do we have only two political parties? Why within, you know, a country with 300 million people, we remain a two political party system? It's because this is what's been presented, offered, and put forth, and simply accepted. Even though there's a vast variety of ideas out there, vast varieties of political opinions and directions mankind can go, but yet we're reduced to these two shithole decisions, right or left, Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative. And of course, like he explains, the politicians will rise to the top of that. The masters at rhetoric, usually you're going to find lawyers in Congress, they will rise to the top of that, of course. This is a structure built specifically for them to rise. So this is the reality. Mankind, especially mass man, is influenced through propaganda and even other means of getting messages or intentions across. Whatever attitude one chooses to take towards this condition, it remains a fact that in almost every act of our daily lives, whether in a sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons, a trifling fraction of our 120 million. This is back in the early 1900s when he's saying 120 million, which makes me want to go into a rant at the population explosion, but I won't. A trifling fraction of 120 million who understand the mental processes and the social patterns of the masses. The Gustav Le Bon book, The Crowd, uh, the video I did on that would be good to check out if you want to get into herd mentality, mass thinking. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind, who harnessed old social forces and contrived new ways to bind and guide the world. There is, consequently, a vast and continuous effort going on to capture our minds in the interest of some policy or commodity or idea. It might be better to have, instead of propaganda, a special pleading committees of wise men who would choose our rulers, dictate our conduct, private and public, and decide upon the best type of clothes for us to wear and the best kinds of food for us to eat. But we have chosen the opposite method, that of open competition. We must find a way to make free competition function reasonable smoothness. To achieve this, society has consented to permit free competition to be organized by leadership and propaganda. So things are regulated through successful people using methods of propaganda to put forth common ideas or desires for common commodities. This invisible intertwining structure of groupings and associations is the mechanism by which democracy has organized its group mind and simplified its mass thinking. To deplore the existence of such a mechanism 
is to ask for society such as never was and never will be. It is the purpose of this book to explain the structure of the mechanism which controls the public mind and to tell how it is manipulated by the special pleader who seeks to create public acceptance for a particular idea or commodity. It will attempt at the same time to find the due place in the modern depart It will attempt at the same time to find the due place in the modern democratic scheme for this new propaganda and to suggest it gradually involving code of ethics and practice. So he's going to lay forth what is propaganda. The steam engine, the multiple press, and the public school. That trio of the industrial revolution have taken the power away from the kings and given it to the people. The people actually gain power which the king lost. For economic power tends to draw after it political power. And the history of the industrial revolution shows how that power passed from the king and the aristocracy to the bourgeoisie. So the transfer of power from the aristocracy to the bourgeois. And he's attributing that to these mechanisms of the press, the steam engine and public school. And while there is some truth to that, that is not the full truth. I mean, of course, of course, it's, it's simply not about the press in itself. It's about what the press was preaching. And the public schools wasn't simply about public schools. It was about what the public schools were teaching. And the steam engine, it wasn't simply because there was a steam engine, but it was who the steam engine was bringing in. Top that with numerous other factors that went into the downfall of the monarchy throughout Europe. And you have your transfer of power. Universal suffrage and universal schooling reinforced this tendency. And at last, even the bourgeoisie stood in fear of the common people. For the masses promised to become king. Today, however, a reaction has set in. The minority has discovered a powerful help in influencing the majorities. So the bourgeois, of course, they had their fright. Communism was rising. They had to figure out ways to keep the masses placated. And, uh, you know, fast forward, here we go. You know, modern day obesity and pornography all around you. Top that with 200 television channels, a nice comfy sofa, and Kim Kardashian's ass on your Instagram, and you got yourself a docile mass. But hey, who am I to complain? Free markets, right guys? That's what it's about. It has been found possible so to mold the mind of the masses that they will throw their newly gained strength in a desired direction. In the present structure of society, this practice is inevitable. Whatever of social importance is to be done today, whether in politics, finance, manufacture, agriculture, charity, education, or other fields, must be done with the help of propaganda. Propaganda is the executive arm of the invisible government. I am aware that the word propaganda carries to many minds an unpleasant connotation. Yet whether in any instance propaganda is good or bad depends upon the merit of the cause urged and the correctness of the information published. In itself, the word propaganda has certain technical meanings which like most things in this world, are neither good nor bad, but custom makes them so. 
All right, now he goes into the history of the word propaganda here to get a little definition on it. I find the word defined in the Funk Wagnall's Dictionary in four ways. Number one, a society of cardinals, the overseers of foreign missions, also the College of Propaganda at Rome, founded by Pope Urbane VIII in 1627 for the education of missionary priests sacred college de propaganda fide number two hence any institution or scheme for propagating a doctrine or system three effort directed systematically towards the gaining of public support for an opinion or a course of action and number four the principles advanced by propaganda the Scientific American, in a recent issue, pleads for the restoration of the respectable usage of that fine old word propaganda. There is no word in English language, it says, whose meaning has been so sadly distorted as the word propaganda. The change took place mainly during the late war when the term took on a directly sinister complexion. World War I, he's referring to or excuse me, the uh, Scientific American is referring to. Back to Bernays. Judged by this definition, we can see that in its true sense, propaganda is perfectly legitimate form of human activity. Any society, whether it be social, religious, or political, which is possessed of a certain beliefs and sets out to make them known either by spoken or written words, is practicing propaganda. Propaganda becomes vicious and reprehensive only when its authors consciously and deliberately disseminate what they know to be lies or when they aim at effects which they know to be prejudicial to the common good. Propaganda, in its proper meaning, is a perfectly wholesome word of honest parentage and with an honorable history. Now, you tell that to people today, you know, they laugh at you, they think you're crazy, but that is the reality of the matter. The fact that it should today be carrying a sinister meaning merely shows how much of the child remains in the average adult. A group of citizens writes and talks in favor of a certain course of action in some debatable question, believing that it is promoting the best interest of the community. Propaganda? Not a bit of it. Just a plain, forceful statement of truth. But let another group of citizens expressing opposing views, and they are promptly labeled with, with the sinister name of propaganda. Formerly, the rulers were the leaders. They laid out the course of history by the simple process of doing what they wanted. And if nowadays the successor of the rulers, those whose positions or ability gives them power, can no longer do what they want without the approval of the masses. They find in propaganda a tool which is increasingly powerful in gaining that approval. And this is why I personally believe that the media, the education system, are more powerful weapons than the military and the police in the hands of the elite today. Because this is their means of controlling people. They can't completely do it through force. There has to be persuasion. Therefore, propaganda is here to stay. It was, of course, the astounding success of propaganda during the war that opened the eyes of the intelligent few in all departments of life to the possibilities of regimenting the public mind. 
As a matter of fact, the practice of propaganda since the war has assumed very different forms from those prevalent 20 years ago. This new technique may fairly be called the new propaganda. It takes account not merely of the individual, nor even of the mass mind alone, but also and especially of the autonomy of society with its interlocking group formations and loyalties. It sees the individual not only as a cell in a social organism, but as a cell organized into a social unit. Touch a nerve at a sensitive spot and you get an automatic response from certain specific members of that organism. Business offers graphic examples of the effect that may be produced upon the public by interested groups, such as textile manufacturers losing their markets. Now he's going to go into this specific example, how textile manufacturers touch that sensitive spot to get a reaction. They tied into the base desires of people wanting to be uh, with the in crowd and, and all of this into purchasing a product that just... Um, years before was viewed as outdated and worthless well he'll, he'll go into it here the problem arose not long ago when velvet manufacturers were facing ruin because their product had been long out of fashion analysis showed that it was impossible to revive the velvet fashion within america it was determined to substitute purpose for chance and to utilize the regular sources for fashion distribution and to influence the public from these sources a velvet fashion service openly supported by manufacturers was organized. Its first function was to establish contact with the Lyon manufacturers and the Paris courtiers to discover what they were doing, to encourage them to act on behalf of velvet, and to help in the proper exploitation of their wares. An intelligent partisan was enlisted in the work. He visited Lanvin and Worth, Agnes and Patau, and others, and induced them to use velvet in their gowns and hats. It was he who arranged for the distinguished countess, this or that duchess, to wear the hat or gown. And as for the presentation of the idea to the public, the American buyer or the American woman of fashion was simply shown the velvet creations in the atelier of the dressmaker or the milliner. She bought the velvet because she liked it and because it was in fashion. The editors of the American magazines and fashion reporters of the American newspapers like, likewise subjected to the actual, although created, circumstance reflected it in their news, which in turn subjected the buyer and the consumer here to the same influences. The result was that what was at first a trickle of velvet became a flood. A demand was slowly but deliberately created in Paris and America. So it's just showing you the fickleness of people and how advertisement creates demand. So velvet goes out of style. The velvet companies, the velvet manufacturers start thinking, hey, how can we get velvet back in style? Where they go, they obviously go grease the palms of some designers in France and of some duchesses. Just like today, they pay stars to wear certain shirts or drink certain products on camera. It's same thing. Well, this was essentially in its infant stages. But then they create demands. They create a buzz over it again. And the fashion writers, they have to, they see the duchess in it. They have to comment on it and how nice it is. And they see it on the runway now. And they have to comment on it and promote it. And now the buyer are buying what just a few years ago, they said, oh, this is out of style. I have no desire of velvet. Now they're restocking their closet with velvet. So, yeah, advertisement creates demand. This cannot be glossed over and it often is by these free market advocates 
There's nothing free about the market. Small groups of persons can and do make the rest of us think what they please about any given subject. But there are usually proponents and opponents of every propaganda, both of whom are equally eager to convince the majority. There are invisible rulers who control the destinies of millions. It is not generally realized to what extent the words and actions of our most influential public men are dictated by shrewd persons operating behind the scenes. Nor, what is still more important, to the extent to which our thoughts and habits are modified by authorities. In some departments of our daily life, in which we imagine ourselves free agents, we are ruled by dictators exercising great power. And of course, people try to dismiss what Bernays is saying here because they like to hold on to this myth of themselves. But uh, let us not forget, not only did Bernays make himself a very financially successful person, uh, he made a lot of other people that followed his methods uh, very, very successful. Another good book to check out is Confessions of an Advertisement Man, which also goes into you know, everything Bernays put forth and most advertisement, all advertisements companies uh, use his methods and make billions, billions. So, you know, every time you turn on the television and you see a commercial of a broad and a bikini eating a burger, selling you a hamburger, you could thank Bernays for that. Many different aspects of your desires and psyche are being addressed with these carefully planned presentations. The idea of invisible government is relative. There may be a handful of men who control the educational methods of the great majority of our schools. Yet, from another standpoint, every parent is a group leader within the authority over his or her children. Now, which would make sense to why you want to destroy the nuclear family, uh, why divorce is up, why both parents are typically working. It's, yeah, you want to make sure all the control is out the way that the kids aren't getting propaganda from their parents, but only through the media and the education system, or mainly through the educational system and the media. So that doesn't even hold true what he's trying to say, that there, there's a balance and a level. But he's surprisingly forthright, and, and I haven't gone into this in video, but he worked for the government. He was making press releases for the government. He he was so successful, they brought him on. So he, he knows both aspects, the consumer, commercial business, and the political business of getting votes and what's going on. And he's flat out telling you, yes, it's run by a small select few people. And even goes into saying in the book that oftentimes the puppet speaking uh, has a hand up his ass. The invisible government tends to be concentrated in the hands of the few because of the expense of manipulating the social machinery which controls the opinions and habits of the masses. To advertise on a scale which will reach 50 million persons is expensive. To reach and persuade the group leaders who dictate the public's thoughts and actions is likewise expensive. For this reason, there is an increasing tendency to concentrate the functions of propaganda in the hands of the propaganda specialist. This specialist is more and more assuming a, a distinct place and function in our national life. So the question naturally arose, if we understand the mechanism and motives of the group mind, is it not possible to control and regiment the masses according to our will without their knowing it? The recent practice of propaganda has proved that it is possible, at least up to a certain point and within certain limits. Mass psychology is as yet far from being an exact science and the mysteries of human motivation are by no means all revealed. But 
At least, theory and practice have combined with sufficient success to permit us to know that in certain cases, we can affect some change in public opinion with a fair degree of accuracy by operating a certain mechanism. Just as a motorist can regulate the speed of his car by manipulating the flow of gasoline. Propaganda is not a science in the laboratory sense. But it is no longer entirely an empirical affair that it was before the advent of the study of mass psychology. It is now scientific in the sense that it seeks to base its operations upon the finite knowledge drawn from direct observation of the group mind and upon the application of principles which have been demonstrated to be consistent and relatively constant. The modern propagandist studies systematically and objectively the material with which he is working in the spirit of the laboratory. You know, studying a segment of the population, how can I get this message out to them? How can we win the, the votes of the blacks here and, and the Hispanics here and the whites here? You know, how do we tailor our message uh, to these three different groups? Propaganda, like economics and sociology, can never be an exact science for the reason that its subject matter, like theirs, deals with human beings. If you can influence the leaders, either with or without their conscious cooperation, you automatically influence the group which they sway. Very interesting there. Very, you know, a lot of telltale of, of why the leaders, uh, the stewards of the society, essentially, are often targeted, bribed, worked over. And what I like about the book, he's just flat out telling you the method that takes place. Why these people are targeted. Because this is your best chance of, of getting their base also. But men do not need to be actually gathered together in a public meeting or in a street riot to be subject to the influences of a mass psychology. Because man is by nature Gregorius. He feels himself to be a member of the herd, even when he is alone in his room with the curtains drawn. His mind retains the patterns which have been stamped on by his group influences. Trotter and Lebon, I mentioned Lebon earlier, he's in the links, concluded that the group mind does not think in the strict sense of the word. In place of thoughts, it has impulses, habits, and emotions. In making up its mind, its first impulse is usually to follow the example of the trusted leader. Men are rarely aware of the real reasons which motivate their actions. A man may believe that he buys a motor car because after careful study of the technical features of all the makes on the market, he has concluded that this is the best. He is almost certainly fooling himself. He bought it perhaps because a friend whose financial acume he respects bought one last week or because his neighbors believed he was not able to afford a car of that class or because its colors are those of his college fraternity. It is chiefly the psychologists of the school of Freud who have pointed out that many of man's thoughts and actions are compensatory substitutes for desires which he has been obligated to suppress. A thing may be a desire not for its intrinsic worth or usefulness, but because he has unconsciously come to see in a symbol of something else the desire for which he is ashamed to admit to himself. A man buying a car may think he wants it for the purpose of locomotion, whereas the fact may be that he would really prefer not to be burdened with it and would rather walk for the sake of his health. He may really want it because it is a symbol of social position, an evidence of his success in business, or a means of pleasing his wife. 
This general principle that men are very largely actuated by motives which they conceal from themselves is as true of mass as of individual psychology. It is evident that the successful propagandist must understand the true motives and not be content to accept the reasons which men give for what they do. It is not sufficient to understand only the mechanical structure of society, the groupings and the cleavages and the loyalties. An engineer may know all about the cylinders and the pistons of a locomotive, but unless he knows how steam behaves under pressure, he cannot make his engine run. Human desires are the steam which makes the social machine work. Only by understanding them can the propagandists control the vast, loose-jointed mechanism which is the modern society. Under the old salesmanship of the manufacturer, and now he's saying how this, show you exactly how desire has been created now. Under the old salesmanship, the manufacturer said to the prospective purchaser, please buy the piano. The new salesmanship has reversed the process and caused the prospective purchaser to say to the manufacturer, please sell me the piano, creating that desire. The tendency of big business is to get bigger. No shit. Did it take Edward Bernays to tell this to these people? Through mergers and monopolies, because I, I believe even in the book, I, I wish I had it in front of me now, but um, The Autonomy of the State by Rothbard, one of his attacks against collectivism was, the state always has a desire to get bigger. Yeah, what freaking doesn't? Business, an individual, a state. The tendency of big business is to get bigger. Through mergers and monopolies, it is consistently increasing the numbers of persons with whom it is in direct contact. All this has infested and multiplied the public relationships of business. Yeah, so of course, it's, it's always, these free market advocates always, you know, they try to paint this, oh, it's just a bunch of small businesses voluntarily exchanging with each other without the government interference. No, it's, it's multi-millionaire and billionaire conglomerates just hoarding everything as much as they can because they have the means to do so. And then the only time you're able to even slow that down is not because of the free market, it's because regulation starts getting put on them and start breaking up monopolies through the state. So, yeah, the tendency of big businesses to get bigger, of course. But why this is lost upon many people, I have no idea. No serious sociologist any longer believes that the voice of the people expresses any divine or specially wise and lofty idea. The voice of the people express the mind of the people and that mind is made up for it by the group of leaders in whom it believes and by those persons who understand the manipulation of public opinion yes exactly exactly and i think we've gotten the point by now so we'll finish up with it is composed we'll fin and lastly we'll finish up with bernay saying it is composed of inherited prejudice symbols and cliches of verbal formula supplied to them by the leaders Fortunately, the sincere and gifted politician is able, by the instrument of propaganda, to mold and form the will of the people. So yes, people are, are influenced uh, by their surroundings or settings, by their leaders. And fortunately, he's saying that even when you have a, if you have a good leader around that, they can also, it's not all bad. It's not all uh, just these, even though it largely is today, you have these swarmy lawyers just, you know, being snake oil salesmen wherever they go and people still eating it up. But there's more and more discontent. More and more people are getting fed up with the whole system. So that's all a good thing. 
But yes, that is it. Edward Bernays' Propaganda, a worthwhile read. Um, he goes into a lot more processes to specific, to, to specific propaganda, uh, whether it's political or commercial. But I didn't think that was necessary for this video. I just wanted to go into the main theme of propaganda, what it was, how it's used, and let it come from the words of the most successful person and the biggest influence on modern propaganda, uh, being Edward Bernays. Other suggested readings would be Confessions of an Advertisement Man by David Ogilvy and Propaganda by Jacques Ellul.